Publisher editor Barry Alexander Brown, sound editor Phil Stockton, researcher Judy Ailey, and re-recording mixer Tom Fleischman have worked with filmmaker Spike Lee on such films as She's Gotta Have It, School Days, 25th Hour, Inside Man, Malcolm X, and most recently, Black Klansman. In this episode, we talked with them about how they first began working with Spike Lee, their collaborative process, and the cinematic breakthroughs they've made in working on films together for over 30 years. What happened was She's Gotta Have It was people kept telling us over and over and over, listen, if there's a market for films like this, for black films, basically, Hollywood would be making them. Spike took it out to the film festival in San Francisco. And from that moment on, it just took off like a rocket. I mean, it took off like a rocket. I'm your host, Isabel Sederni, and in this episode of Frame by Frame, you'll meet the collaborators of Spike Lee, picture editor Barry Alexander-Brown, sound editor Phil Stockton, researcher Judy Ailey, and re-recording mixer Tom Fleischman. Frame by Frame is presented by Post New York Alliance because it's how you finish that counts. You can share this conversation through our website, postnewyork.org slash framebyframe, or via Twitter at at postny. We welcome your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write us at framebyframe at postnewyork.org. This session was recorded at Soundtrack New York. Picture editor Barry Alexander Brown has cut many of Spike Lee's feature films, including Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, He Got Game, Summer of Sam, 25th Hour, and Inside Man. Barry has once again returned to work with Spike on Black Klansman for Focus Features. He's also worked with the acclaimed Indian director Mira Nair on such films as the Oscar-nominated Salam Bombay, Monsoon Wedding, and most recently, Disney's The Queen of Katwe. Recently, he authored a script titled Son of the South, a feature film that will be shot in location in Alabama in the fall of 2018. I asked Barry to talk about how he and Spike Lee first met. Well, I've known Spike since the summer of 1981. I grew up in the Deep South, uh, from Alabama, and after my first film, The War at Home, I went back down to research a film and ended up spending the summer in Atlanta. And Spike and I met, he was down working with somebody I knew who had gone to Morehouse with. And I met him that summer of 1981. We both were living in New York. We both came back to New York at the end of that summer. And I helped create this company called First Run Features, a film distribution company for independent American films. And Spike was at NYU, and we needed somebody to check the prints because it was all film. And I thought, you know, this is a really good job, part-time job for a film student. And it's right down near NYU where our offices was. It was on Bleecker Street. So I asked him, you know, you, you want a job? And he said, yeah. And so, and he'll say this, that, that I was the first person to give him a job in the film business. <laughs> it, it's true. And so, over the next few years, we really got to know each other and became friends and began to understand that we had a very, very, very similar way of thinking about movies and about entertainment, really. There were so many people I knew at that time in the independent film world who sort of looked down their nose at entertainment and... I found somebody who really respected entertainment. You know, Spike did, you know, and really understood that that sometimes certain things are entertainment, and it's brilliant, and it should be respected. And I think that's one of the reasons Spike has had such a long, long career, and how most of the other people I knew at that time disappeared, because movies for them was a way to deliver a message rather than a cinematic experience. 
The Spike was really about the cinema. The Spike grew up having his mother take him to Broadway musicals on Broadway. And I had grown up going to whatever Broadway musical was touring the country and would come to a, a city I was, I was in and I would go to it. And so we both loved Broadway musicals. <laughs> and uh, so that was another place where we just connected. So we knew Broadway musicals and we loved them. And so during those mid-years of the early 80s, I was doing things, you know, films, and he would help me out. And throughout college, you know, he'd do films and I helped him out. And finally, he was going to make this feature film, She's Got to Have It. And it was amazing to me that, you know, one of my friends was actually going to make a, a feature. You know, I'd done a feature, it was, but it was a documentary, it wasn't a narrative. And Spike was going to get this thing done, so he said, you know, will you help me out? And so I said, yeah, I'll help you, you know. And we ended up editing in Spike's apartment. He lived in a converted garage in Fort Greene. The crazy thing about this place was that whoever owned the house was pretty cheap. And it was wintertime, and they would turn the heat off on this garage apartment in the middle of the day while they were gone. And we would be freezing in this apartment. And then I got a, a short job at CBS that next summer. And uh, some of the work was done on the steam back that, we, that I had at, at CBS. I think a lot of the sound work was done on that steam back. I mean, it was, thank God, because, you know, we, there was no money, you know. So just to get it done. And I did what Spike called at that moment sound design. Yeah. I did that. <laughs> the sound design was, was basically, let's just get these as smooth as possible <laughs> and, and, and separate that, you know, dialogue. And it was all in film, you know, and I knew how to do a cue sheet. And I, was, I think I was the only person he knew who knew how to do a cue sheet. I know that one of his, his backers did not finally come through, and she's got to have it. And his grandmother had invested something like seventeen or eighteen or nineteen thousand dollars, somewhere around there. But when this other person didn't come through, I think he was going to throw in the towel and say, "Well, we can't do this." And Monty Ross, who had gone to Morehouse with Spike, and who was working on the film with them, said, "No, no, 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 no. We can do this. We got to do this. You can't quit." And I guess overnight they figured out. Well, we can shoot it in 12 days, and we can get it shot. We can at least get it shot, which is what they did. I mean, we were still trying to raise money just to complete it. I think it was about $10,000 to have enough money to complete. Man, it was just impossible to get anybody to invest, and we would hold these events, and nobody would invest. And people kept telling us over and over and over, listen, if there's a market for films like this, for black films, basically, Hollywood would be making them. So people were saying their wisdom was, well, you've made this film with just you know, an all-black cast and nobody's going to want to go see this because people, all these people always know so much. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and John Pearson finally came up with The Last of the Money because he was also trying to raise the money. And I, I remember after one event where we screened the film, the cut that we had, and everybody just said no. And he was just like, Jesus, this is terrible. And he came up with the money out of his own pocket. 
She's Gotta Have It premiered at the San Francisco Film Festival and prompted a bidding war for the distribution rights. It opened in the summer of 1986 with what Lee called a marketing gimmick. For nearly a month, the movie could be seen at only one theater in America, Cinema Studio at 68th and Broadway. When the film opened in wide release, it made about $7 million. I asked Barry to describe his experience of how She's Gotta Have It not only launched their careers, but prompted a visual phrase that has become a signature of all Spike Lee films since. You know, what happened with with She's Gotta Have It was Spike took it out to a film festival in San Francisco. And from that moment on, it just took off like a rocket. I mean, it took off like a rocket. And so the film opened in New York two weeks after my son was born. And so I actually had been out of town. And I got back in the day that the film opened in one cinema on the Upper West Side. And I call up Spike to see him, just to say hey. And he says, oh good, you're back, you're back in town? Great, we got a problem. The MPAA says that they're not gonna give us an R rating, it's an X rating, and it's because of this one scene. It was a sex scene between Nola and Greer. And he said, we made this deal with the MPAA. You gotta go up to the cinema. It's already starting to play, right? And you gotta cut half of that scene out. When it comes off the projector, you gotta cut half the scene. <laughs> so and he said, it's all set, just go up and do it. It's like, well, all right. So I, I have a pretty good idea how to do it and what to do. And so and the projectionist is like, what is it that you're doing? <laughs> Wait, are you're editing the film? <laughs> you know, it's, it, we're, we're projecting it. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, you know. So, but I, I cut it, you know, and I, and I saved it. As a matter of fact, uh, only last week did I find this again, this thing that I cut out of the movie in 1986. And, you know, I, I spliced it back together, and a lot of it was just a drum beat. And it just simply worked. I mean, I didn't know if it was going to work. I mean, you were doing it, just rolling it down on a, you know, two-hand... Rewinds. Rewinds and getting it, cutting it, cutting it, you know? But it worked. Because also, you know, in film, the sound is 18 frames ahead. So you're not actually even cutting. So, But it worked, you know? And I'm <laughs> stuck around to see. You, know, you is, got is, lucky. Yeah. Is this going to work? And then, you know, I wasn't really a film editor. I was just a filmmaker that was doing documentaries, basically. And then Spike put out a book about the making of She's Gotta Have It, about the whole experience, which I was absolutely floored by because we're pretty close. And I had no idea he was doing this diary and creating this book about the experience of making his first movie, and it was great. He kept the journal the entire time, and it's great. And it's actually, it's the kind of thing that really should be taught in film schools because it really tells you what it's like to make your first movie for no money. But in it, he talked about me a number of times, and finally he said, and Barry's going to edit my next movie. I said, what? <laughs> really? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to edit the next movie? I mean, I'm not an editor, and yet this is what he's decided. I'm going to edit this next movie. And so actually, right after that, I went from movie to movie to movie to movie to movie as an editor. School days, School days do the right school. thing that I did. Salam Bombay, you know, Mira and Spike turned me into an editor. 
because we were learning together and we were learning from each other mm -hmm. you know, during those early films you know, and figuring out you know, what it meant to actually make a feature film and, and to cut one. Barry and Spike consistently deliver fast edits that are characteristic of Lee's kinetic visual style. I asked Barry to talk about their process. The process is during the shoot, I get the dailies and we watch the dailies together and from the notes, I cut. And after the film wraps, I have a cut of the film. And, and I always cut tight. And I've always cut tight. I, I actually didn't, I don't think I knew enough to know that some people do assemblies. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know, you know? I thought you get footage, you get a scene, you cut it, yeah. right? Hey, it's not like, well, you know, this is the loose idea of the scene. A loose idea of a scene? What does that even mean? You know? So from the get-go, because I didn't know any better, I cut tight. And I, mean, I know both of us are like, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Right. You know, As soon as somebody starts stops talking, somebody else, I mean, the next frame oftentimes, somebody else is, you know, starts talking. Mm -hmm. And it actually used to be... We've actually loosened it up a little bit because in Do the Right Thing, I really liked people interrupting each other. And there's a lot of tiny bit of talking over each other in Do the Right Thing. I probably went too far on that. It's on some movie, and Spike probably said, wait a second, we got to back off this. I don't understand what they're saying. And now it's, 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 we don't, there's not so much overlapping anymore. But also, also there's times where everything breathe mm -hmm. you know it's just but but also and i was trying to explain this to one filmmaker that had, he had a film in which everything breathed and i said if everything has that much space in it then the places where you really want it to be effective isn't because you've played that card over and over and over so that you don't feel that thing where it's like all of a sudden, oh, we're just watching this now. Mm -hmm. And there's no dialogue or there's, right? But also I think that in the, uh, you know, years ago, actually, I guess now decades ago, we would have this joke, Spike and I, about, you know, a moment in a <laughs> that we thought was just too much. Like the not enough happening. So say, you know, well, we could hire. We we could do some advertising there. You know, <laughs> maybe a, a small family could could live in that space. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, and that's how we felt. Like let's go. You know, and and you know, working with Mira, Mira oftentimes would slow me up. Let's slow up here for a moment. <laughs> let's take this in. You know. So she would, you know, the films I did with Mira, Queen of Katwai and Salam Bombay, she really had to slow me up. Because I really do want to just go. And Spike just wants to go. And I don't know how that developed. It developed very quickly. I don't know how it developed. Somehow it developed between but us. But you're talking about both the way you work and how it is in the films, right? Like it Definitely I was talking about how it is in the films. I mean... Personally, just like to cut yeah, fast. Yeah, make decisions and keep going. And I cut very, very fast. And and it's almost always because I want to see it, you know. 
And also, in the years of when you were cutting in film, you had to kind of, at least for me, because I didn't know about assemblies, I had to have an idea of how a scene should get cut together because you'd have these rolls of big 35-millimeter film all over the editing room. You know, and, and you couldn't talk to me in those days while I was editing because I would literally have just rolls of, of them around the room on flat surfaces and knowing, okay, this is that close-up I want to go to. This is the wide shot. This is her shot. This is his reverse. This is that moment where he says that, that you know, and I would have that all around the room, Right. And as I was cutting, I would say, okay, I'm going to cut, go to the next moment where I wanted this take. And, and, and I'll mark it, I'll put it over here, or I'll hang it up in a bin. And so it was all in my head all the time of how to put this scene together, right? And so you do, you know, years of doing that. And now you're working digitally, which seems like huh, you know, a, cake, <laughs> a cakewalk, right? But I still do it, you know? I see a scene, and a lot of times the scene gets cut in my head, you know, before I before I I can cut it. Mm -hmm. So actually, you know, the whole process then just becomes for me at times it becomes excruciatingly slow. I see that 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 that, that. okay. We just have to get there, right? And now I actually have to physically do it, right? <laughs> Rather than, you know, just talk into a mic and say, Siri. <laughs> it's coming very Wide shot. She says, that's good, Siri. <laughs> you know? but, but most of the time when you cut, all the time actually, all the time when you cut that way, you're cutting it and you're cutting and you think, oh, that was not very good, you know. Um, Even though in my head it works so well. So brilliantly. <laughs> so brilliantly. <laughs> well, the actors, they just never... <laughs> they just don't comply. Here Barry tells the origin story of the first time they created that double or triple or quadruple cut of a similar fragment of time that has become a signature along with the floating shot in Spike Lee's films. Somebody had said to me... There's this thing that happens from time to time in films that we've done together where, where people hug each other twice, right? And it started with the one scene I cut and She's Gotta Have It where I saw, you know, I was cutting in film and I saw that Greer, the character of Greer, was undressing and laying out his clothes very carefully and then climbing into bed. And he almost climbed into bed the same way in two takes and I said, oh, I'm going to make Spike laugh, you know. And I said, I'm going to have him do it twice, climb into bed. Because I could do it, do it, and it would be slightly comic. And he liked it and said, no, that's great. we got to keep that. I said, oh, no, man. Let me see. No, that's a, that's a joke. <laughs> it's a joke. That's not, this is not serious. Not, this is not a serious cut, <laughs> you know. This is, and, but he said, no, no, that's great. But from that crew this whole thing about repeating things at times that's like a signature now yeah it's like really, a signature really yeah the double cuts yeah yeah on one of the episodes of she's got to have it last year when the actress that played the original nola darling meets 
the current uh-huh. NOLA in an art museum, and they hug four times. And Spike, <laughs> every time it comes up, Spike would turn, hold up, it'd go four times. <laughs> so he is still <laughs> embraced there that. There you go. That and the reverse dolly thing, or his yeah. sort of his... Uh, that floating shot. Yeah. <laughs> Re-recording mixer Tom Fleischman met Spike Lee through picture editor Barry Brown, as well as through the then Sound One manager, Bill Nisselson. Tom first began mixing feature motion pictures under the tutelage of the well-respected New York re-recording mixer Dick Voracek in 1979. And in 1981, Tom and Dick were nominated for an Academy Award for Best Sound for their work on Warren Beatty's Reds. Since then, Tom has developed long-term working relationships with many directors, including Martin Scorsese, Jonathan Demme, Spike Lee, David Frankel, Oliver Stone, and Ron Howard, and earned four more Academy Award nominations for Demme's The Silence of the Lambs, Martin Scorsese's Gangs of New York, The Aviator, and Hugo, for which he also won the Oscar. For his work in television, Tom won an Emmy Award in 2005 for his outstanding sound mixing on Scorsese's documentary Bob Dylan, No Direction Home, and was nominated for Emmys in 2011 for the HBO television series Boardwalk Empire, and again in 2012 for Scorsese's George Harrison, Living in the Material World. Tom's most recent projects include Martin Scorsese's Silence, the Doug Lyman Tom Cruise feature American Maid, Spike Lee's Black Klansman, and in-depth documentaries for HBO on the life of Elvis Presley and the history of the Rolling Stone magazine. I mixed Barry's film, The War at Home, in 1978. Nine, 1979. I wasn't even born. And... uh, Several years went by, and I, I met Spike uh, in 1985, I think, when he was making School Days. It would have been 87, I think, 1987. Was it that late? Yeah. Yeah, because 85 was the summer he shot She's Got a Half It. Okay. And then so, came out in yeah, 86. Right, so, and then Spike. Yeah. Um, so it was probably late 86 or 87, early yeah. 87. Yeah. I was, you know, still kind of green. I had done a few pictures and. There was this fluke that happened where we got nominated for an Oscar for Red. So suddenly, you know, I was working full time as a mixer, and the Bill Nisselson, who was at Sound One, said, "This is filmmaker Spike Lee. You know, he made She's Got to Have It, and he's working on a new film. And evidently, he had gotten a studio deal for School Days. It was, I think, one Columbia, Brothers, right? Columbia Pictures. Columbia. Yeah. yeah. So they had a budget, and it was a real movie." You know, there was a big dance sequence and the musical number, and yeah, it was a musical. It was. It was really it was a was. musical. It was, it was a musical. Yeah. He really wanted to do a musical right after, as soon as he could do one. He could, you know, and where, where he would have a budget to do a movie, a real movie. He wanted to do a musical. I mean, I mean, and just because he loved musicals, and and there was a pretty big musical number in in. She's got to have it, right? With the, in the park, the dancing and, and everything. There was, yeah. there was. Even in Malcolm X. Malcolm X is yeah. a big one too. Yeah, right? and uh... Uh, and I got kind of assigned. Take care of this kid, you know. He's also Spike and I were talking at that time, and I know your name. It came up somewhere. I said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tommy mixed the word home, and so for Spike, it was like, Well, that's good, you know, because he loved the word home. And, yeah. 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 So we went out to lunch and we hit it off. You know, we had a really nice talk, and I wound up mixing School Days, and that was the first 
time I worked with Spike. Also, like Tom and Spike and I, we're, we're young and, and we want to try stuff out. We want to, we want to do something with sound. We want to throw something in the surrounds or, or whatever. Spike uh, was, and he still is, very keen on panning things around in the theater, you know? Let's put that over on the left. You, you were on Do the Right Thing. So. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, good yeah. That's supervising sound editor Phil Stockton, who has worked on an array of feature films and documentaries for such directors as Mert Scorsese, Spike Lee, John Sayles, Ang Lee, and many others. Phil has been recognized numerous times with awards and nominations. He won both an Oscar and a BAFTA for Hugo, and received Oscar and BAFTA nominations for Life of Pi. Additional BAFTA nominations include Gangs of New York and The Aviator. He has four Emmy nominations with a win for Boardwalk Empire and several MPSE Golden Reel Awards, most recently for Life of Pi and George Harrison, Living in the Material World. Phil has had the good fortune to work on over 150 films, including such classics as Raising Arizona, Goodfellas, Do the Right Thing, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and Brokeback Mountain. I remember Spike coming to meet Skip and I, and I was on the seventh floor of Sound One, and I was in this little corner room, and I and we we didn't even have chairs, so we just were sort of standing there, and undoubtedly we were hired because of working on Scorsese movies. We just finished Last Temptation of Christ the year before, I think, and you know Spike was a huge devotee of Scorsese. But I remember that I was kind of trying too hard to ingratiate myself to Spike, and he was just kind of, you know, like, yeah, you know, uh, who's this kid? He has quite a bullshit detector, and that was why maybe it was hard for me at the beginning, because I think I was full of bullshit, So, and Spike saw that. And once I just started being myself and proving myself, too. And Skip eventually moved to L.A., but even before that, there was a point where I just sort of took over. It took more than one film, actually, for Spike and I to become, what I would say, you know, friends and able to really talk. And now it's like we're like family, you know. Uh, Spike's definitely very, very, very loyal. I counted up the features, including documentaries and concert films and stuff, and it's 27 at this point, so that's... uh, that's something. Yeah. You know, it's, she's got to have it, and then um, school days, and then this was Do the Right Thing was the next one. And he, you know, that was a big success. Um, that was a really great His, his most a, a, acclaimed film and everything. And I felt very lucky to be working on it. The first film I was the supervising sound editor on was um, Bamboozled. And I can remember saying, like, you know, I don't know if this cue is really... Is really working yeah. here, and Spike. But Billy just, had uh, written so these long jazz cues that played under scenes, you know, just sort of never-ending, bubbling music under there, and it was very hard to mix because it was very dynamic. Yes, and there was a lot of dialogue, and not all of it was recorded that well, and so some of it was hard to, you know, hard to hear. And then we had this jazz score going, and I remember being really challenged by that. This was on uh, Do the Right Thing. It, it it wasn't written by a film composer. You know, Bill Lee was a jazz musician. He, he was composing a musical piece. And sometimes, you know, there was a lot of dynamics in the music, which was difficult to play under dialogue. So I remember struggling a lot with that. Barry, do you know if 
Was that scored to the picture, that film? Do you remember? I don't believe so. I don't think it probably was. It was probably just themes, you know, more more than... So I had to try and find a way to fit this, you know, this music into the context of the movie. Also now they do deliver the the mixes of the score in a way that uh, a number of the instruments are separate. So you might say, listen, those horns are just killing us, you know, right? And you can can dial them out. Right. School Days, not so much. I think School Days was a little easier. Well, it was more of a musical yeah. to begin with. So, yeah. uh, But I do remember on Do the Right Thing having really struggling with the music. The dynamics in the music made it difficult because I had to keep it so low so it wouldn't interfere with the dialogue that a lot of stuff in the musical score got lost. Mm. Uh, so Spike I, likes to hear the music. Yeah. Growing well, he grew up with that. I think he grew up, you know, he grew up in a house of music. Yeah, his sister plays the bass, the stand-up bass. Yeah. But I think it was enough just that Bill. Yeah. You know, because Bill was... Well, Bill was a bassist, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a lot of musicians around all the time. Yeah. So Spike grew up with that. And his taste is so... You think you know what his taste is, and then he'll just completely surprise you. Like, we're in Black Klansman. There's a Emerson, Lake, and Palmer song, and... Right. You know, I just thought, well, this yeah. is probably in there because it's of the era and it's sort of it's just sort of there and Spike like I love this song. Yeah. And he said, "What what album was this?" And you know, he just he likes a very wide variety of music. Exactly. Um Lucky Man. Oh right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know, and he got game is Aaron Copeland. Oh yeah. All Aaron Copeland the score. And last season of uh, She's Gotta Have It was, uh, there's a lot of Sinatra songs, and uh, yeah. yeah, it's just... And Summer of Sam was like a lot of disco stuff. So, I mean, no, Spike has a pretty wide knowledge of uh, uh, of music, and, and he likes a lot. And a devotion, absolutely. When I'm supervising, which I pretty much always am these days, I'm kind of responsible for the whole thing, so I interface with whoever's cutting the sound effects and whoever's... You know, I usually, we always have a spotting session with Spike where we go out and talk about everything that he wants and bounce ideas of our own off each other and everything. We usually, you know, screen the film and then immediately go through the whole thing and talk about all the details and where there's going to be score. And and Spike's very good at articulating what he wants. Like, I want this to sound like this. I want this to look like this. And, you know, there, I think, 99.9% 99.9% of directors say, oh, I hate ADR. I just don't want to do ADR. Spike loves it, and he makes no bones about it. He likes to direct. He loves to direct. He's very, very enthusiastic all the time. So he likes to get the actors in and work with them again and try to make improvements. And he writes lines constantly. And just, in, you know, we do big groups. Almost every film... They hire a group coordinator, and they're looking for a certain type, and everybody, you know, there's a big, almost like a casting session. Spike just, he already knows, he just brings his own people in. It's often veterans of his other films. It it can be anything. And he, well, I guess on Black Klansman, we had a couple big groups. I know on Chirac, there were lots of really large groups, and... You know, we set up the ADR stage with 
25 or 30 chairs. Everybody's got a little headphone on, and they're they're just he's making some of it up as he goes, and other things are scripted. But he's just really good at getting performances out of people and such enthusiasm all the time. And uh, a lot of times the performance improves. Mm -hmm. So, like, we're in Black Klansman. There's, um, I just was thinking about this little, I think it was our last day of the mix, and you you had had to go or something, and, and we made this decision, like, he wanted to have the main actress sing along yeah. with the song. Because it was there was a production track, but she wasn't in the track. And this is yeah, this is so typical of Spike. So he doesn't pick up the phone and say, get a hold of say he just calls her and she's in the Caribbean, but she's flying back that night. And this is our last hurrah. It's the very last chance the we last day could possibly have to do this because it had to be delivered for Can, I guess, like the next yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. So she says, well, I'm my flight's supposed to land at like 7:30 tonight or something like that, and I'll, I'll just come straight to the ADR stage. So, you know, of course, the, she's delayed and it, it took forever to go through customs and all that stuff. So finally, she shows up at about you know 11 or 12 or something like that, and we do these lines. And uh, I think I guess Paul Shu had Paul, to Paul put mix in it in because. Uh, yeah, you know, at this point, home. it's like it's like <laughs> two in the morning or something, and and uh, and we just drop it in, and it's in, and and that's Spike's dedication to just I want to do this where it's gonna help, and let's just do it, get it done, and mm-hmm. yeah, it was a nice mix. In Spike Lee's Black Klansman, a scene early in the film features a seven-minute speech by Stokely Carmichael or Kwame Ture which is intercut by a poetic montage of faces of students against a black background. This scene also interweaves multiple perspectives of sound. I asked Barry, Phil, and Tom to talk about the construction, edit, and mix of that scene. It was it was hard work for me to yeah. cut that because there were, I think there were eight or 10 mics and there were room mics, there was a podium mic, the uh, there were a lot of mics and Spike wanted to specifically hear some of the shout-outs and comments that people were making and not others. And it was, some of the mics were a little distorted. So some it was like finding, sometimes the podium mic was the one to use and sometimes another. And then, of course, Tom eventually has to sort of match everything and make it work and put it together. But it took me a long time to do that. And, and you know, there were a lot of times a crowd would be reacting and we'd need the crowd to react longer, and he would speak again, so we couldn't use the continuation. So finding little pieces to have a reactions and applauses continue. But I, I, I specifically remember just like some of the mics were just not really usable. You know, you sort of want to pinpoint like whoever's reacting and whoever's seeing it too. So sometimes the the radio mics for those people weren't good and so it's a challenge no it's a challenge those are scenes are challenging scenes to, for sound for sound while they were shooting you know that scene they would pick out people in the audience that were already made up and shoot them in a different room against black right and try different things and sometimes different camera movements and sometimes just looking look left look right da, da, da. then he said you know and, and i want to use them at some point you know i want to use these faces 
during the speech. And it wasn't really much more than that. So I thought, okay, I'll try something. <laughs> and he did a similar thing in Malcolm X, too, with the, with the faces. Where that pan across those all the faces. Yeah. The, well, I mean, the thing about it for both of us, because I was editor of Malcolm X as well, you know, for both of us, we both felt very much like we were back in Malcolm X for that speech. And I think on some level, both of us really enjoyed that sense of being back in Malcolm X. And, and actually, working with an actor could really deliver that speech. And you just felt you know, that, that once again, we had an opportunity to have that power. And, and maybe for us nostalgic reasons we just kind of liked <laughs> recreating that sense for us again so he had an idea of how to do the portraits and and i just started working on them and doing what i wanted and and really thinking uh, on the whole that this great visual effects artist that we've worked with also for a long time randy balsmeyer would do something quite different than, than what i did but spike Spike really liked so much what I did that even when we showed Randy the sequence, and Randy was saying, well, I could do this, and I could do that, and he goes, and Spike said, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is what I like. It's done. It's done. <laughs> and I kept thinking, really? You know, really, this is done? You know? Because I always thought that Randy would come in and do something a lot better than what I did. But basically, he just... You know, by Spike's direction, came in and just smoothed out the, my moves and and, and the like, mm -hmm. because sometimes it's three three people from three different sources, mm -hmm. right? That you know, marrying together, mm -hmm. and you know, in the Avid, uh, you can only do it so well in terms mm -hmm. of the effect. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to really have somebody who can make it smooth and. Well, I found the speech was much less challenging for me than the uh, cross-cut with Harry. I mean, that was particularly when it got into the whole Birth of a Nation. Mm. Oh, the Birth of a Nation was pretty wild. That was, that was really <laughs> yeah. a yeah. challenge. Here, re-recording mixer Tom Fleischman talks specifically about how he mixed a complex scene towards the end of the film. You have this player piano going, and, and you had Harry Belafonte talking over it, and then and there was all this crowd, quietly, people shouting and yelling. and <laughs> Yeah. I mean, there was a score that played, but then when it got into the Birth of a Nation, it was just this player piano. So that recorded recorded by Bruce Hornsby, right, mm -hmm. of the Grateful Dead. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> of the wrote, Grateful Dead. Yes, he wrote and uh, reco and recorded it. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that the, the music wasn't real complicated in that part of the in the scene, but but all the rest of the action was. I mean, there was layers and layers. There was. Belafonte, and then there was the reactions to him in the yeah, student right. union, and then there was the, you hear the people well, reacting to... The Klansmen are screaming at the The Klansmen are screaming at the, at, you know, this woman is shouting, you know, the, oh, one of the get characters. Get him, get him. And all that stuff, yeah. Yeah. Look at the pickaninnies. Yeah, it was pretty intense. Yeah. And, and also, the, the way it's cut... I'm afraid. Though there was times where I left just enough space for a line. Yeah. I mean, yeah. nothing more than yeah. that much space, because we were go we were keeping this certain rhythm going. There were areas where it was really it was really hard to find fill-in material because they're they're shouting and yelling, and then 
it just cuts to reaction shots of people and there's nothing there and it's just like reusing pieces and finding stuff just just to keep the energy going too yeah when when you have something like that in a script there's usually bigger blocks of dialogue from both sides because on one side is is the african the african american student union where this uh, guy who is now about 90 years old is telling the story of what happened in, in Waco, Texas in 1916 when he was a young man and with this horrific, horrific thing happens where this, this mob basically tortures and burns this young black man who is his friend. And we intercut that story it's intercut with the induction of new recruits to the Ku Klux Klan, led by David Duke, played by Topher Grace, who does a great, great job. And so we go back and forth between these two imagery. And and in the script, it big blocks. And then, but uh, and I knew, well, it's probably never going to be quite that big of a block. And sometimes I'm going to have to use Harry Belafonte's voice underneath and also tie certain things in because at one point he starts talking about, you know, well, I had to get out of there. And I went and I went into this building so they wouldn't get me, so they wouldn't know where I was. And I, and I, but I could see out onto the street what was going on, right? At the same time, you see the main character in... Uh, this cop called Ron Stallworth walking into an, almost this attic room where he peers down and watches the induction of these clan members. So I was playing as if Ron Stallworth was the storyteller going back to Waco, Texas, just trying to tie these stories as closely together as possible. And trying to do it rhythmically mm-hmm. so you don't ever kind of lose either one. You never lose it. And you can never, and never lose really the emotion of it. I mean, it's, that sequence took place near the end of the movie. And uh, the speech was near the beginning. But both of them were important in, you know, in, in building that. I mean, it really starts with the speech. That's where, where the thing really gets going because that's where the main character sort of gets radicalized. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's a, he's the first black police officer ever hired by the Colorado Springs, and he's trying to trying to move up in the police department. And suddenly, he's assigned to go to this rally, and he's listening to this speech, and something clicks in his head, yeah. you know, and that's what gets the ball rolling for the story. Archival producer Judy Ailey first met Spike Lee when he called her up after recognizing her work as a researcher for a documentary on Marvin Van Peebles. She first worked on Spike Lee's When the Levees Broke, A Requiem in Four Acts, and has continued to work on many projects with Spike Lee, including The Black Klansman. Other credits include Nathaniel Kahn's The Price of Everything, Shola Lynch's Free Angela and All Political Prisoners, Michael Moore's Capitalism, A Love Story, and Sicko, and Amir Barlev's The Tillman Story. I asked her to talk about the conversation she has with Spike Lee when beginning to tell a story like Black Klansman. I think Spike is really, 
he's really interested in going back and looking at like what is there. Mm-hmm. So you know, s- sometimes when we start a project and we kind of outline these are the things he wants, and I say, well, how much do you want to look at? How much do you want me to get? And he says. Get me everything. That's really what he says. Get me everything. Honestly, I don't know if he looks at every single thing I send him, but it's he wants it. He wants to have as much as possible to consider. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to go back and look at that and say, you know, is the way that something's been represented all along the way that we should necessarily represent it. Are now. you saying the media sensationalizes things? <laughs> well, I'm, uh, that's a given. My no, but are that's crushed. a given. But I, but I think that, um, you know, mistakes get made and then they calcify. And so to go back and look, you know, take Stokely Carmichael. He, you know, he ended up with this sort of reputation as this dangerous, wild firebrand. When you really watch him, he's so reasonable and smart, and he's not what he's been made into, not just by the news at the time, but, you know, the the way people have continued to represent him because he's really important in the in the history of the United States, and, you know, he's been really reduced to... Yeah. You know, one idea. His image has become fixed in this one way, and we don't, and we, you know, stop being able to see him. And I actually think that Spike's film really puts him out in front of people again in a in a really great way. And I want to bring up one thing about Black Klansman and, and Judy's and Spike's relationship. The footage at the end of Black Klansman, which was taken from Charlottesville, Judy couldn't find who owned a lot of this footage, because so much stuff was being shot and being used by various people. And as well as there were certain people that, in the footage, that really had to be cleared, because their faces were too distinct in the footage. So Spike said, Judy's got to go down. She, he's got, she's got to go down there. She's got to go down there. She's got she's to be there. She's got to meet people. She's got to find out right there who owns that footage. She can't do it over the phone. She's got to go. Yeah. Correct? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's other archival material Some of, that I pulled for him for Black Klansmen. So a little bit is in the film, but a huge amount of it was really reference for the actors or for scenes that he shot. You know, there's a scene where all the torches get thrown in right before the final montage. And there was actually footage of those kinds of ceremonies. There was footage of David Duke. There was footage of Stokely Carmichael that... So, Corey Hawkins. Yeah, so Corey you know, Hawkins we, was his name. Yeah. Judy. Thank you. Thank you. I thought you just knew all the actors' names. You know the character names, of course. So there's a lot of that kind of collecting. And we sat down at the beginning. It was a studio picture. There was a budget, and there was a person for the studio who was really responsible for and managing the budget. And I had to go through, you know, I sat down with Spike. What are you thinking of here, here, here? So we could make a budget projection. And when we talked about Charlottesville at that time, he said, oh, I want the Vice stuff, you know, because Vice did Charlottesville Race and Terror, which was, you know, a very powerful documentary. But then Barry started cutting, and then one day he called me and said, is there anything else from Charlottesville that we could get? And then it just, 
expanded. And then as you were cutting, you began naturally to want more. And then suddenly we were trying to get everything we could. And, you know, another issue with the Charlottesville material is that, you know, most of it is not shot by professional people. So in some cases... Almost none of it in Charlottesville. And some people people who are not professionals shoot better than others. But, you know, there was some stuff that was on YouTube and there was some stuff that was on a website for the student newspaper. And, you know, I would. And there was was some political groups. There were some political (laughs) groups that had footage. And it was obviously uh, obvious from these groups that they that they had collected it from a lot of different people, but not necessarily they even knew who they got this shot from or that shot from or that shot from. And so Judy would have to really get into that community of people who were shooting and say, do you have any idea who this might be? Yeah. And an interesting thing about gathering that footage was that you, you know, and especially when I went to Charlottesville, I really realized what a trauma that was. You know, so many people descended on Charlottesville from the rest of the country with all these different political agendas. And when you actually go to Charlottesville, people are shocked still by what happened there because they don't feel like what happened there came out of their community. It came onto their community. Can you guys talk about the sound for that footage? Because because Spike had a particular idea in mind for the sound of the Charlottesville stuff. We did do stuff, but Spike said, nope, I just want just the, the actual footage. raw sound that goes with each shot to be in there. And Barry had cut it. I didn't really have to do a lot with it because it was very... The sound is the sound that was recorded right there in Charlottesville. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's no augmentation. Yeah, there was no augmentation. No. Just, just the music the going in the back. But beyond that, right. yeah, there was some score playing with it. But there's score, yeah, yeah. But the the sound of well, the riot speaks for itself. Was it doesn't need anything else. It was pretty yeah. raw, and we left it pretty raw. Yeah. I didn't yeah. do much to it. I no, just I you know just... balanced it one against the other. Yeah, I think for for Spike, his point was was what you're experiencing here is the raw footage and the raw sound. And we, are, we as filmmakers, are not trying to manipulate you into something bigger or something bloodier or something harsher. So just, just this is the footage, this is the sound. Spike said it, at the end, he just says, every time, every time I see this, and he just kind of you know, shook his head. It's like he, he never, never got used to it. I don't know how many times I saw that footage, but it, it got me every time. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, me too, and I looked at hours and hours and hours of that. And I said that to you at the last screening, that you don't mm. get used to it. No, you, you never know? do. Because what you really see is this kind of confrontation between people that y- you can't slough it It's off. horrific, is yeah. mo- mostly. is just it, And particularly after having sat through the movie, because mm. this all happens at the very end of the movie. So the movie kind of prepares you for this in a way, because it's, you know, it's a period piece. It takes place 40 years ago, and yet here we are today and nothing has changed.
Though still early in its release at the time of this recording, Black Klansman has received numerous awards and rave critical reviews. Editor Barry Brown talks about the unusual speed with which the film came together. You know, when Spike saw the cut of Black Klansman on January 8th, and as a matter of fact, it was the first time ever that Terrence Blanchard was in town, and he had Terrence come in and watch it with him. When, when he watched the the very first cut, my cut, and he hadn't seen it, which is really unusual for that to ever happen. He, he I think he saw we were so close already, even with my cut, we were close. But two months later, a little over two months later, they were recording the score. You know, they recorded the score like around I don't know, March nineteenth or something. Yeah, yeah. We screened this for both of them on January 8th. That's so fast. That's yeah. crazy. That's insanely fast. Yeah. But also, as I know Spike said right away, we're going to go for Cannes right away. This can play at Cannes. We're going to go for Cannes. And we got you know, to gear up because it was supposed to be mixed like in May or June or something, yeah. right? And all of a sudden, everything had moved up by two months. But the good thing, I mean, it didn't change from the time we started till the time we finished. There was very, very few changes. I remember that I had a cut that was about two hours and ten minutes long. Mm -hmm. And I think with adding things and subtracting, I think it came out to about 207 now. Mm -hmm. I mean, listen, Spike and I have done so much work together over the years. For me, there's not going to be a lot of guessing about what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. what this scene is about. I mean, definitely there always is stuff where Spike will say, oh, what, what is that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what? Sounds what? familiar. What? <laughs> wait, a, wait a second. Stop, stop, stop. They'll say, stop, stop. I've stopped, Spike. <laughs> you know? What is that? I mean, how do you cut a scene like that? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> go back. Let's go back. You know, let's go back. Go back. Right? And so <laughs> I guess my version is that is like so Spike, we did something here, um well let me let me hear it. What do you think? Out. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you really feel, Spike? Do you like no, it's just it's it's so great to work with someone who instantly makes decisions. And yet over the years there's more of a trust that have the best interests of the film in mind and all that. And he'll, you know, I feel like I have a lot more creative input and leeway. And, and he'll ask my opinion a, a lot now in the beginning. I don't think he ever really asked my opinion of, of how something was supposed to sound. Or, you know, now it just kind of look like, what do you think kind of thing. I mean, I think that's part of years and years of yeah. a relationship and trust. And I have everything. the same experience. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. Yeah, he, he wants to make sure we're happy. Today's podcast recording was engineered at Soundtrack New York by Christian Catonia. Frame by Frame is produced by myself, Isabel Siderni. Additional production help by Angelique Ibarra and Faye Gartenberg. The music credits for this episode include selections from Bill Lee's soundtrack from the film She's Gotta Have It, Bruce Hornsby's opening theme for the She's Gotta Have It television series, and Terrence Blanchard's soundtrack from Black Klansman. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Frame by Frame with the collaborators of Bob Fosse.